This edition of Monocle on Saturday was first broadcast on the 16th of April 2022 on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. This is Monocle on Saturday. Well, I'm pleased that uh, Vincent McAvaney is joining me for the show and we'll be looking through the papers together. Plus, Emma Searle will give us the latest on Jacob Zuma in South Africa and Andrew Muller tells us what we learned this week. We did ourselves learn to cultivate maybe some small amount of the fat-headed World War II nostalgia at large among Johnson and Rees-Mogg's cohort on the grounds that the pop stars of that era, like Dame Vera Lynn, contented themselves with singing rather than passing comment on the conduct of the conflict itself. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. Let's start with the news. President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine says up to 3,000 Ukrainian troops have died in the war with Russia and 10,000 have been injured as fighting continued in Mariupol in the southeast. In the early hours of this morning, explosions sounded in Kyiv in the north and Lviv in the west. At least 152 Palestinians were injured in clashes with Israeli riot police inside Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa mosque compound on Friday, the latest outbreak in a recent upsurge of violence that's raised fears of a slide back to wider conflict. Most of the Palestinian injuries were incurred from rubber bullets, stun grenades and beatings with police batons, the Palestine Red Crescent said, at the most sensitive site in the generations-old Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And Thai rebels sidelined from peace talks claimed responsibility today for deadly bombings in the country's Muslim-majority Deep South that broke a Ramadan holiday agreement between the main rebel group and the government. The two explosions on Friday killed a civilian and injured three policemen. And that's your Monocle 24 News. Now, on this sunny Easter weekend, it's time to have a browse through this morning's papers. And I'm pleased to say joining me is Vincent McAvinney. Hi, Vinny. Good morning. Uh, lovely to have you here. Uh, and it's Easter and we're going to get on to chocolate a bit later, actually. We are, because, yeah. uh, Although we haven't uh, got anything to eat, which is uh, an error. But we do actually, have our lovely buns. I've got a little tiny Easter egg for you. Oh, amazing. <laughs> but I'll give it to you later. Okay. okay. We're giving it all away because right now we have to talk about something really serious and something that is absolutely incensing the British public uh, and, I, uh, and, and the UN Council for Refugees and many others. I'm talking, of course, about this uh, plan to send uh, British asylum seekers to Rwanda. Mm. Tell us more. Yeah, ironically, you know, uh, Easter weekend, a Christian country where you're told to take in and look after the poor and needy. Uh, and the UK has come up with a new scheme for refugees, which has caused, as you say, a lot of controversy this week. And it took us a while to actually clock what the government was doing, because we'd heard for months, if not years now, that they were shopping around trying to find a country. And they were looking at places like the Falklands and St. Helena, really distant places in the Atlantic that Britain still sort of uh, has as overseas territories. Then they were looking around African countries to basically 
actually send refugees who land on small boats on the south coast of England. They cross over from France uh, to what we thought was sort of for processing as a kind of deterrence mechanism. But what the UK has actually come up with is now that if people cross on those boats, uh, it won't affect children. It'll mostly be for uh, single males, which is the majority of this traffic over the channel. They will be sent at a cost to the British taxpayer to Rwanda for processing there to determine if they are refugees or not. And if they are determined to be refugees, they will not then come back to the UK. It is a one-way ticket. They will then live in Rwanda. And if they're not deemed to be refugees but economic migrants, then they'll be sent back to the country of origin. So it is quite a startling policy uh, from the British government this week. It's quite, quite extraordinary, uh, particularly when you look at the human rights record of, of Rwanda. Um, well, I mean, the first thing, I'm sorry to say to the Rwandan tourism board, but the first thing that jumps to mind in Rwanda is genocide in the 1990s. And a post-conflict society still has problems with integration, still has problems with human rights, still has issues with things like torture. Uh, and a nation in which the United Kingdom itself last year at the UN said there needed to be serious investigation into human rights breaches. If you look up the Global Freedom Index, which I looked at this week, of the 160 countries put onto that index, which are assessed in a range of things like the rule of law and, and, and you know rights of LGBT people and women in society, uh, Rwanda Rwanda comes in at around 130 out of 160 countries in that index. Mm. So I think there is going to be serious opposition. Uh, and that's one of the things in the newspapers today. The Guardian has got an interview with uh, Lord Alf Dubbs, who himself was uh, saved from the Nazis. He was sent from Czechoslovakia on one of the kinder transport trains in 1939, uh, has done a lot of work over the years on, on refugees. And he highlights the fact that there will not only be fierce opposition in Parliament, particularly in the House of Lords, we might see another instance where um, we have a bicameral system in the United Kingdom, but there is a way to overrule if the upper house doesn't agree with the lower house, the lower house can overrule, but it takes a bit of time, which then could create more time for legal challenges. You've also got the UN Refugee Agency condemning it, saying it doesn't think it fits under the convention rights that the UK has already signed up with. I think this will be an incredibly challenging policy for the UK to get through. And the other side of it domestically is that the department, the Home Office, which is responsible for refugees, um, have not been able to build a sufficient case, a business case, as it were, for how the policy could work effectively. These are the civil servants, and they also cannot quantify the amount of money. So it's an initial £140 million, which doesn't sound actually like a lot for what they're trying to do because they're having to give money to the Rwandan government mm. to then take in people, house them, give them education, give them jobs, all that kind of stuff. But what as it comes out has happened is that the head of the Home Office Civil Servants, the private secretary, has said to the political secretary, who is uh, Priti Patel, we cannot see that this is an effective policy. And she has been forced to sign something called a ministerial direction in the UK. Now, one of those in the Home Office hasn't been done since the early 1990s. And this basically says to the person in government, we, the civil servants in this department, do not believe this will work and cannot figure out how much it will cost for the British taxpayers and whether it will be cost effective. So you yourself now have to say it is entirely your responsibility for this policy. And I think this is a policy which we're going to see in real time not working uh, because if they're just doing it as an act of deterrence and and that's what many people think it is is that you've got people vulnerable people who are on the uh, french side being exploited by these traffickers paying thousands of pounds all the money they can to go in these unsafe boats and it is 
an unsafe route because that is the busiest shipping lane in the world. Uh, it has uh, quite bad storms can come through, quite bad winds can come through. Uh, the currents as well, because of the way the channel works, you have huge tides in the, in the, in the channel um, twice a day. So it is incredibly dangerous. And these boats are so flimsy, they're being packed on. And the problem has gone up. If you go back to uh, just about four years ago, you only had less than a thousand people making this. Last year, it was around 26,000 people. So there, there is a problem here with people you vulnerable people being exploited by criminal gangs last year an incident where 27 of those people drowned in the channel but if this is just a signal to say to people don't come don't do this well is it going to work because as the prime minister and pretty patel were announcing this in the week Sky News had live pictures of boats crossing the channel at that very moment so who's going to tell those people don't do this because you'll end up in Rwanda we're going to see over the next couple of months that people aren't going to care, that they're still going to come. There'll likely be more this year than there was last year. And so we'll see this policy not working in real time. And then if those people do end up getting sent to Rwanda, I think, sadly, we will hear horrible stories about how, you know, if you're a Rwandan person and all these people are starting to turn up from all over the world and Britain sent them to you in this strange echo of colonialism, you're going to start being unhappy that this is happening and they might be acts of violence or oppression against these people. I think this is going to be a real headache for the government. As much as they've tried to change the narrative on Partygate this week, it could actually come back to become a huge problem for them if it starts to fail. And as Alf Dobbs says, uh, it, it, it amounts to state-sponsored trafficking. It does, yeah. That That is effectively what this is, at huge cost. Now, the UK is having to, uh, at the moment, as they're processing these people, pay, I think it's around £5 million to £6 million every single day to house these people. Now they're ending up in places like the government's requisitioning, ho or not requisitioning, but paying, taking over hotels, taking over B&Bs, and housing these people there as they do this. But, you know, the cost of the flight, the cost to pay the Rwandan government, one MP this week rightly said, you know, this is more uh, than putting them up at the Ritz would be um, simply to kind of jimmy up the very right of the party, the Brexiteers. And there was a lot of talk about, you know, this is our new Brexit freedoms allowing us to do this. Um, and in, in advance of local elections, also with the general election sort of looming now in 2024, the Conservatives way down in the polls, deep unpopularity of the Chancellor and the Prime Minister. This is trying to get back to what they see as their voters' red meat to get them out to vote. Yeah. Now, as you say, uh, it, it is likely that there may be some resentment from Rwandans towards people coming in, particularly in a country with a history of of of, of genocide, of othering of people. Mm. If you remember, the the uh, this was very much along ethnic lines. Uh, they were called cockroaches and people were told to stamp them out. And sadly, that's not the only place in Africa where this happens. In uh, South Africa, we're seeing huge acts of xenophobia, mostly towards uh, other Africans, particularly Zimbabweans who come in, who are better educated, who work for less money. Uh, just last week, we saw a Zimbabwean murdered uh, by a mob uh, just for, for simply being foreign. Uh, and that's sadly not, uh, not an uncommon uh, occurrence in South Africa. Now, uh, a lot of that came about when Jacob Zuma was in power. But, of course, he has now uh, gone, but he's facing a trial. So uh, let's hear about that, because his trial against um, the, the former president was postponed yet again this week, uh, this time to allow the Supreme Court of Appeal to reconsider the ex-leader's application.
application to have a state prosecutor removed. Now, Zuma, who was ousted as South Africa's head of state in 2018, has pleaded not guilty to charges of corruption, money laundering and racketeering in connection with an arms deal in the 1990s. So here's Monocle's and South Africa's Emma Searle with her take on the story. Like a cat with nine lives, Jacob Zuma has once again managed to escape the dock. The former South African president was meant to appear before the Peter Maritzburg High Court on Monday for what should have been the first day of his long-awaited corruption trial. But alas, Zuma called in sick and the proceedings were postponed yet again, pending the outcome of the ex-president's appeal to have the state prosecutor removed from the case. The trial's delay is nothing new. In fact, it's the latest of a long list of setbacks. Jacob Zuma, who was ousted from South Africa's government back in 2018, faces charges of corruption, money laundering and racketeering in connection with a $2 billion arms deal in the late 90s. Zuma, of course, denies all charges, insisting that the trial is part of a politically motivated witch hunt. And while the 80-year-old has publicly said that he wants his day in court, his team of lawyers have worked tirelessly to delay proceedings. So much so that it has now been nearly 17 years since the initial charges were made. Looking back, one could say that the rise and fall of Jacob Zuma represents both the hopes and failings of a democratic South Africa. Zuma first rose to prominence as an anti-apartheid freedom fighter who, alongside the likes of Nelson Mandela, heroically spent his 20s in jail as a political prisoner. After Mandela's release, Zuma garnered a solid reputation as a man of the people, especially among poorer voters in KwaZulu-Natal, culminating in his eventual ascent to deputy president in 1999. Strangely, Zuma's popularity remained undiminished by subsequent charges of corruption and one rape allegation, both of which failed to result in a conviction. By 2009, Zuma's mass appeal saw him elected as the president of South Africa. I am greatly honored to stand before you today to accept the mandate bestowed upon us by millions of our people to lead this great nation for the next five years. Any armchair critic will notice that Jacob Zuma has a long track record of surviving scandals which might have ended anyone else's political career. While in office, his government spent about $24 million of taxpayers' money on so-called security upgrades to Zuma's private estate in Kandla. Those security upgrades included a swimming pool, a chicken run, and a football pitch. This, understandably, sparked outrage in Parliament. It is a big deal when your president spends $246 million of public money on his private house. It is a big deal when first he denies that it was public money and then says it was for security upgrades only. It is a big deal when he says in this parliament that he had no intention of paying back anything. Today, Jacob Zuma is currently on medical parole from a 15-month prison sentence after he was convicted of contempt of court. Zuma's jailing triggered a wave of violent riots in July last year, during which more than 300 people were killed in the provinces of Gauteng and KwaZulu-Natal. <laughs> President Cyril Ramaphosa notably took a hard line, condemning the chaos as an attempted insurrection. 
It is clear now that the events of the past week were nothing less than a deliberate, a coordinated, and a well-planned attack on our democracy. In a weird turn of events, Zuma's legal team resorted to using the July 2021 riots as a bargaining chip in court, suggesting there could be more social unrest if the trial wasn't postponed. But whether Zuma's survival can be bolstered by public support remains an open question. South Africa's economy was hit hard by the pandemic, and the country's unemployment rate is a dismal 35%. But one can be certain that Zuma will continue to exhaust every avenue available to him in order to obstruct the judicial process. Conviction or no conviction, a trial in and of itself would be a major achievement. For when and if Zuma does finally show up to court, this will be good for South Africa's democracy, for even a former president is not above the law. For Monocle 24, I'm Emma Sell. Well, many thanks to Emma there. This is Monocle on Saturday on Monocle 24. I'm Georgina Godwin. And with me still in the studio is Vincent McAvinney. Uh, Vinny, let's uh, turn, obviously, to the other huge, huge story, the mm-hmm. worldwide story. Uh, this is Ukraine. But uh, let's have a look at media. Um, and there's a great article in the New York Times uh, saying how Fox News helps Russian media. Tell us more. Yeah, that's right. Uh, obviously... Most independent media now in Russia is shut out. It is just the state Putin-aligned channels. And one of their favourite things to do now uh, is to take clips from Fox News, particularly from Tucker Carlson, who is the uh, main evening host. uh, And they cut them, they reuse them to back up their case for war. Uh, And, you know, Fox News... In in 2015-2016, Donald Trump, as he took control of the Republican Party, completely flipped the party's position when it came to Russia. You know, decades of being openly hostile to Russia, um, going back to the Cold War, uh, and all of a sudden it was, you know, looking up to Russia, Russia this soft, cuddly, cuddly nation, Putin this great leader, uh, and that is something that has, even after Trump, as out of office is sticking. You know, you've got many Republicans still saying that they think that Vladimir Putin is a great leader. They're finding it hard to condemn what he has been doing. And one of those is Tucker Carlson, who is uh, been on the record as you know saying that actually before the war, in the week before the war, he was saying he has more of a problem with the radical left trying to cancel him. Putin's never tried to cancel him, uh, and he's really struggled over the past couple of weeks to really condemn him uh, when actually. President Volodymyr Zelensky is the person who's standing up for the ideals, freedom, democracy, uh, freedom of thought, speech, all the all the Western ideals that, uh, uh, you know, t- the jingoism within Fox News tries to claim that it is there to protect. Um, and what these clips are being used for night after night is basically by the Russian uh, presenters to try and uh, bolster the case to show that America uh, actually supports what they're doing. They're taking as well the comment sections from Western newspapers, but also particularly the Fox News website to show that they have support and to pretend that they have support in the West. So this is a pretty vicious uh, loop that's going on. Uh, and really, you have to question, you know, why is no one in Fox News and ultimately the owner, Rupert Murdoch, kind of getting a rein on this, trying to make the presenters, who are, you know, they're not journalists, these are just entertainers who are kind of going, uh, driving the kind of worst uh, media kind of, in some ways it is like a, 
psyop of their own people to confuse them about what's really going on in the world to push a narrative uh, and we've seen that for years but now when it comes to a war where there is a very clearly an aggressor committing war crimes potentially genocide uh, and they still are trying to play a gray line between that it is and it's being exploited then by that aggressor you do have to wonder what on earth is going on mm. well let's look at another murdoch organ the times um and they're talking here about uh the first crowdsourced war this is so interesting because it is a completely different way to raise money yeah, it's incredible. I mean, we've seen uh, around the world, everyone wants to do what they can to help the Ukrainians. It has, in poll after poll, huge support from populations for their government to give weapons, to give aid. You've had big fundraising. You've had people taking in Ukrainian refugees, opening their homes um, across uh, across continental Europe. Uh, but one of the things as well is that people have been wanting to do is to actually contribute themselves. There doesn't seem to be really any uh, law against doing something like this. And you're now getting Ukrainian pilots who have shown uh, incredible skill uh, with pretty outdated uh, sort of Soviet era uh, equipment. Uh, uh, but using just, you know, it shows when, when you have a passion to fight for something, how much harder you will do it. You know, Russian pilots are probably wondering, why am I bombing this neighboring country, which we consider to be sort of a cousins? Whereas, you know, this is existential for the Ukrainian pilots. So obviously, they've done huge damage to the Russian Air Force. But but of course, they have had some of their own planes shot down. And so now there's a video that's gone out uh, trying to crowdsource if people want to donate uh, money for them to get uh, new planes so that they can take on the Russians. There is this whole issue that you had countries like Poland, Bulgaria and Slovakia, which had the same Soviet era planes. Uh, and there was the hope that those could be given to the Ukrainian pilots who could then be used to them. They would fly them. Uh, but then there was this problem that you know, the, Poland wanted to send them to an American Air Force base and then the Ukrainians picked them up from there. It has all got a bit sort of confused and there's a bit of stalemate on that. There were worries that then it would aggravate uh, NATO. But if we're, given the kind of weapons we're sending now, it really does seem strange that we can't just park these planes as near as possible on an airfield uh, in Poland for the Ukrainian fighters to come and mm. pick them up and, and fly them back. But at the moment, they are putting out this video uh, showing some of what they've done and asking people to try and help them get those planes. Of course, there is one man who could buy many, many planes, uh, and that is Elon Musk. But instead, he's uh, thinking of using his money to buy Twitter. Yeah, that's right. Another week and news headlines dominated by the uh, Tesla SpaceX founder. And he's made this a sort of quite aggressive move. Uh, he sort of announced after the fact that he'd bought this huge stake uh, in Twitter, about a 9% stake. Uh, he was offered, he, it was an, at one point maybe going to go onto the board of the company, but that hasn't happened. Uh, and now it seems that he wants to take over it because... He says that he has uh, concerns about uh, free speech. He's talking about things like Trump being banned and the rules that Twitter has on inciting things like uh, violence. He seems to be very libertarian, you know, purist without thinking of consequences idea of, of unadulterated free speech on the platform. Uh, and he's now apparently wanting to buy it for about $43 billion. But it's had a huge reaction from Twitter itself. If you follow anyone who works for Twitter, on Twitter. It's quite interesting to watch a company because normally when this kind of thing happens, you know, in a hostile takeover situation, th there was... 
initially when he when the stake was revealed, a lot of people from Twitter were very public on Twitter themselves about their disquiet over this, about being uncertain what's going on. And you've been able to see in real time the kind of internal corporate reaction to it, because then when the hostile takeover came to light, you had the Twitter staffers openly sort of declaring, you know, that they didn't want this, they wouldn't work for him, that they were, you know, really unhappy with this, which is quite interesting to see. But you've also got now the management after a meeting this week, looking at sort of diluting shares to try and uh, basically block Elon Musk from taking over this country, uh, for this company. But we'll see just how aggressive he is, isn't it? He is the world's richest man. Uh, but it is it is strange that he's decided to go after this. Perhaps it's a bit of cover because you've also got issues, real issues now in EV maker with the lockdowns in China on the supply chains for things like getting the parts that he needs for Tesla production. So perhaps it's a bit of a distraction from that. Uh, but we'll see whether he's actually serious about it. Mm, and as one wag put it on Twitter, well, why doesn't he just buy Fox News and shut it down? <laughs> uh, let's, uh, let's go to Andrew Muller now and find out what he learned this week. We learned this week that we may have been irresponsibly profligate in the expenditure in recent weeks of pretty much every weary sarcastic quip we could conjure at the revelation that, while the United Kingdom hunkered under COVID-19 lockdowns, those who wrote and enforced the relevant laws were conducting a schedule of roistering and wassailing which would have exhausted Caligula. For we learned this week that, bear with us here, the number 10 Venga bus had finally been pulled over by Plod. We learned that the Metropolitan Police had issued fines for unlawful partying to figures up to and including the Prime Minister Boris Johnson and the Chancellor of the Exchequer Rishi Sunak, who now look very much like the Mick Jagger and Keith Richards of British politics in that they have been able to preside jointly over a bacchanal of absolutely epic proportions while clearly being unable to stand each other. We learned, however, that despite causing Great Britain to sighingly reset its days without a sitting Prime Minister receiving a punishment for breaking the actual law flip sign from 109,937 to zero, and we checked using the appointment of Sir Robert Walpole in April 1721 as a basis, Boris Johnson intended, as he has throughout his entire enragingly consequence-free existence, to style it shamelessly out, uttering phrases which a few of his pre-politics wives and editors may have found familiar. I once again offer a full apology, and I accept in all sincerity that people had the right to expect better. But we learned that there is, or was, or at least should be, something of a complication. All right, don't oversell it. And it is basically this that in Westminster variety parliamentary democracies, while an amount of poor behaviour is indulged, turning up drunk, falling asleep, theatrically accusing your opponents of assorted picturesque malfeasances and so forth, the one thing you absolutely cannot do is what is grimly referred to as misleading the House. And we learned upon reviewing the clips that a fair old whack of Johnson's utterances on this subject in the House of Commons did, in light of recent developments, sound a bit misleading the House-y. I understand 
and share the anger up and down the country at seeing number 10 staff seeming to make light of lockdown measures. And I can understand how infuriating it must be to think that the people who have been setting the rules have not been following the rules, Mr Speaker, because I was also furious to see that clip. But I repeat, Mr Speaker, that I have been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged that there was no party and that, and that no Covid rules were broken, and that is what I have been repeatedly assured. We also learned much the same of some of Rishi Sunak's statements to the House on this matter. No, Mr Speaker, I did not attend any parties. We learned, upon reacquainting ourselves with Erskine May, the generally accepted Bible of parliamentary procedure, that this is, or is supposed to be, a pretty big deal. Here is the pertinent clause read by Monocle24's Decency in Public Office desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. The Commons may treat the making of a deliberately misleading statement as a contempt. In 1963, the House resolved that in making a personal statement which contained words which they later admitted not to be true, a former member had been guilty of a grave contempt. Not merely contempt, but grave contempt, which does sound like one of the worst kinds of contempt. Nevertheless, we learned that Johnson's cheerleaders had decided that Johnson could not possibly be expected to tender the resignation usually expected in such circumstances because two completely different countries were at war roughly two and a half thousand kilometres away. Here is a statement by Minister for Brexit Opportunities and Government Efficiency. Jacob Rees-Mogg, as read by Monocle24's audacious deflections desk chief, Carlotta Ribello. There is a war on, and the Prime Minister, supported by the Chancellor, provides the leadership the nation needs. At which we learned that Rees-Mogg had apparently not learned that, for example, during actual World War II, the UK changed Prime Minister twice and Chancellor three times, and that turned out OK on balance. However, and in related news, we did ourselves learn to cultivate maybe some small amount of the fat-headed World War II nostalgia at large among Johnson and Rees-Mogg's cohort on the grounds that the pop stars of that era, like Dame Vera Lynn, warbling behind this observation, contented themselves with singing rather than passing comment on the conduct of the conflict itself. While Dame Vera did live long enough to have a Twitter account, she was not much given to misspelled all-caps declarations such as that emitted this week by more recent forces sweetheart Cher. We learned, not that we were asked whether we wished to, that the Shoop Shoop song hitmaker's views on the subject were as follows, as now thundered by Monocle24's diva warmonging desk chief Marcus Hippie. If we don't arm Ukraine with tanks, etc., we may live to regret it because Russia won't just breathe down Europe's back, it will try and break it. Even less explicably, we learned that Ukraine's own official Twitter account had found the time amid its country's existential struggle to reply, thank you, Cher, dead on. Aww. Do you believe? 
We learned, however, that this news monologue, warmed though its icy heart was, was nevertheless unable to rise above signing off with a riff of thematically, if agonisingly, reworked share titles. So, Gypsies, Tramps and Tativ, Walking in Mahomet, I Got You Bar, Nikolai Found Someone, and of course, Believe. <laughs> For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you very much to Andrew and uh, Vinny and I are both dancing around the studio <laughs> here to share who we love. Absolute late 90s banger, I believe. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, whatever you believe in, whether it's a Christian God or a Jewish God or uh, if you're a Muslim, uh, this has been an incredibly holy week for everybody. It's, it's been I think a... it's the, every 33 years there's an alignment like this where all three of them are over the same weekend, which yeah, is quite remarkable. Quite, quite remarkable. Uh, and um, I've had the chance to to celebrate it in in a couple of ways, uh, one with chocolate, and we'll get onto <laughs> uh, not really being a practicing member of any faith. Uh, it doesn't mean a, a great deal to me, uh, although it is about compassion this time of year, and that's something unfortunately looking we're kind of in short supply of. Um, but I did go and celebrate Passover last night. Mm -hmm. My partner is Jewish and we went to celebrate Passover and uh, they were trying to explain the story of Passover because you have this this plate on the table which has various... The unleavened bread. Yeah, yeah. the unleavened bread, but then it's also got a bit of horseradish for the bitter tears and it's got um, a lamb bone and all these various things. And as as the story grows over the years, it's of course it's a story that's been told for 3,000 years, mm -hmm. different things get added in. So for instance, this particular plate had an orange on it because some very kind of misogynist rabbi at one point said, you know, women will only be rabbis when there is an orange on the cedar plate. Well, of course, now people put the orange <laughs> there. There's also an olive symbolising Palestine. And uh, I, I just think it's wonderful the way the story grows. But my hosts were trying to explain Passover to me. And they were, they were talking about how... Moses interpreted Pharaoh's dreams before parting the Red Sea. And I had to say, um, I think that's Joseph. <laughs> <laughs> And it was really quite funny. And then I realised my almost my entire religious knowledge comes through the works of Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> <laughs> and Joseph is an amazing technicolour dream coat, who was not, in fact, involved in that story. <laughs> <at all. laughs> um, but, of course, for Christians, what they do is uh, have this weird bunny that hides eggs. Mm -hmm. Who knows why? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, chocolate becomes a huge thing. So here's a little Easter egg. Oh, thank you very you. much. It's very tiny. That's but... <laughs> all right. <laughs> Uh, but in Canada, they're really kicking off about chocolate eggs. Yeah, there's uh, finally a, a, a post-Brexit boom of exports. Uh, Canada is going wild for uh, the Cadbury's cream egg. If you don't know what a Cadbury's cream egg, uh, it is made, obviously, by the Cadbury's chocolate company. And it's basically a chocolate cell. Uh, shell and then inside is what looks like an actual egg so you've got like a white kind of icing with a yellow kind of icing in the middle I'm a bit meh on them they're <laughs> alright but they've you know famous big advertising campaign here about how do you eat yours um, but in Canada they've gone pretty wild for them uh, they've been emerged over the last couple of years but there's a problem now I don't know if you've, you Cadbury's chocolate here it's pretty good you know for mass market chocolate it's pretty good but if you ever eat it in North America it's sort of put out under a franchise it's horrible it and is. I'm sorry Americans yeah. 
your chocolate's horrible. Hershey's <laughs> tastes like dirt. It's because it has a lower cocoa content. It's just trash. Um, and so uh, Canadians have discovered that actually there is a version that they have of the Cadbury's cream egg, but it's in a plastic casing, which, of course, is not very environmentally good. The British ones are just in this sort of tin foil wrapping. Uh, and so this is a story in uh, Toronto from the Toronto Star of a uh, chocolate shop in the city, uh, which people are going wild for and they haven't been able to import enough of the British kind uh, and so there are people trying to import them into Canada because uh, they have really taken off there. Extraordinary. Uh, well, enjoy your, yeah. your chocolate eggs or, or or your whatever it is that you're doing to celebrate this weekend. Perhaps nothing at all. Perhaps just if you're in London, enjoy, enjoy the sunshine. Enjoy the sunshine. It is so nice. You know, this is the first time in three years people have been able to enjoy a bank holiday Easter weekend uh, and people are really going for it. So it is definitely one to get out there and enjoy. Vincent, thank you very much indeed. That's Vincent Raccovini, and that's all for this edition of Monocle on Saturday. Many thanks to our studio engineer, Nora Hull. I'm Georgina Godwin, and of course, Monocle on Saturday will return at the same time next week. Thanks for listening. Thank you.